knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Provoki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Jake Jordan is a renowned fly fishing guide and instructor who's been in the fishing business for over 70 years. Founder of STH Reels and World Class Angler, an early fly shop in the Florida Keys, Jake has been at the forefront of many changes in the big game world. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss how he got his start, fly fishing for tarpon before it became overly popular, fishing for marlin and what makes them special, mako reels, and more. I was born in Pennsylvania, uh, just a, a town right outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which everybody knows where Philadelphia is. Um, the Delaware River is one of the biggest rivers on the East Coast. comes up from Cape May, New, between New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and it comes up to Philadelphia. It's about 80 miles up the river. But it's a big river, and there's ships and everything that go up there. And my dad worked for a company called Westinghouse, which was a big company. I was born... March 18th, 1942, after World War II had started. But my dad worked at Westinghouse for years before that. He was a machinist, and he worked on the largest milling machine in the world that was owned and built by Westinghouse. And he designed and built turbines, machined the turbines. That If you've ever been on a tour to Grand Coulee Dam, when you go down in that elevator down to the bottom of the dam, those 13 big machines down there, my dad built them. And there it says on a big lead Westinghouse, these big letters. That's what he did. And then when the war started, when I was born, where they were located, and they had this machine that was the giant that was a giant milling machine. And their job during the war effort was to build the turbines to power the battleships and the aircraft carriers. So that's what he did. He built those machines, those big, those big turbines. They would tow the boats from the Philadelphia Navy Yard down to Westinghouse, and the cranes would load them off his machine, put them in the ships, 
and then they'd run them out and they'd run them right in the ocean right there off of that off of Delaware Delaware Bay so that's kind of the background but my dad was a fisherman where we were located we were about I would say 50 miles as the crow flies straight to the Jersey shore. South Jersey was country. It was not city like you picture New Jersey. It was flatlands and, and uh, woods and fields and swamp and boating and marina and beaches. So during the war, he had a family at the Jersey shore. And we used to go down there and he, he would leave my mom and my three siblings and myself down there at the beach, at the beach house all summer. And then he would work, I think he was working double shifts, like 16 hours a day, six days a week during the war. And then every other week he got a weekend off and he would drive down and we would go fishing and go to the beach and stuff. After the war was over, like in 1947, he made a decision that he didn't want to be in that business anymore. He figured that that that, that business was going to go bad, and he wound up buying this swampland in New Jersey, and Summers Point is the name of the town, and had built a house there. And we moved to Summers Point 1949. 50 time 47 i don't know it was in the in the in the 40s and he quit his job and this swamp land he bought was on a creek that was there was a main road that went across from summer's point to longport and when you started across over the first bridge the swamp land he had was on the right hand side and it ran out to the bay and then out to the ocean so it was a it was a it was a uh, navigable waterway, and we spent four years taking a shovel and a Buick station wagon, driving six blocks up into the woods, filling it with dirt, driving six blocks down to the marina, and shoveling the dirt out and filling in a couple of acres of ground. Ooh. This was before they had permits to do fill or anything. One shovel at a time. It was pretty crazy. And we went and filled that in. And then he bought telephone poles from the Atlantic City Electric Company, old used telephone poles. And he built a barge with an A-frame, had an old Model A motor with a water pump on it and an old fire pump. And we used to use the, the pressure hose to dig holes and put the poles in. And once we got the poles down in there, then we would drill the holes with a bracing bit, put big bolts through, put the cross members in, and we built a dock that's about a quarter of a mile long that has little finger piers that goes out. It's still there. And you had like 42 boat slips and then built a bait and tackle store and a gas dock and, I grew up there from like 1950 on, went to high school there, graduated from high school in Ocean City. But my career in the fishing was basically I grew up in a marina and I worked as a washdown boy on people's boats and as a 
mate when they needed a mate, a boat driver if they needed a boat driver. I did. I worked on the commercial fishing boats. I did commercial sword fishing. I did commercial long lining for for uh, codfish, um, striper fish, and we did all saying that for striper. And I did a lot of fishing as a with my dad, who was a sport fisherman. Um, he did some fly fishing, one of the early groups of people to fly fish. He was a member of a fly fishing club out of Wildwood, New Jersey, saltwater fly fishing. And two of the early members that I met, like when I was 10, going to these meetings with my dad, one guy was from North Jersey, and the other guy was from down in Baltimore, and I used to drive up there every other month to go to these meetings. And that was Mark Sosin and Lefty Cray. I met them when I was 10. And that's kind of how I got started in it. I think it was 1951. My dad had a rich guy that had his boat in the marina that had a brand new 1948 Rybovich 37-footer. And he wanted the boat delivered to his house in the Florida Keys, and my dad took the job. So he took me out of school for the month of October. And we got on the boat, pulled out of the harbor, turned right, kept America on our right-hand side, and went a 1,000 miles down to the Florida Keys and delivered the boat. We got there a little bit early. We had like 12 days left before we got the bus and the train coming home. And we fished for 12 days. I still have the log from that fishing trip. And we caught 31 species of fish drifting in Florida Bay in front of Marathon using dead clams for bait because the the boat was had the first freezer I ever saw. The freezer was full of frozen containers of dead clams. And that's... That's how I kind of got connected with the Florida Keys. Was your dad much happier once he had switched career paths? Was it noticeable to you at that age? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, that, now he was like, you know, my dad was a he was a fisherman and a hunter. He did upland bird hunting and stuff, and. In those days, things were a lot different than they are today. I can remember going to school and taking my shotgun. And uh, after school, the bus driver would drop us off and we'd go duck hunting. Uh, You know, kids back then would shoot animals to supply protein for their family. That was part of growing up then. But, yeah, my dad, you know, he... My mom and my dad loved the water. They loved boating. They loved fishing. They were very proud of me that I, you know, got into that. They wanted me to take over that marina, and that wasn't my plan. I, I, uh, when I, when I got out of high school, I, I was in the Marine Corps Reserve, and I got shipped off to uh, TDY. I never actually served in the Marine Corps. I wound up working for the U.S. Coast and Geodetic Survey doing maps and stuff. I wound up 
working for the U.S. Coast and Genetic Survey from the time I was 17 and a half until I was 21, 22 years old. I, I worked in 41 different states in the U.S. And then for the last year and a half, I worked out of Cape Canaveral and I worked on every island on the Atlantic Missile Range. So I got to fish in all those places and I got to travel. I was with a small group of people. We were surveying, doing the layout for the missile tracking radars for the moonshot. That was what I was working on. And then when they killed John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson became the president. He had a government spending cut back and the machine that I was working on became obsolete. They, they came out with, the, with the satellites. They, they had the stuff called Loran that they were using then after the, and my jotometer just went out. Of, it was, it was only good for about five or six years. So I had a choice to stay or go and I left and I wound up coming home. Didn't want to stay in Jersey. And I, Got a truck and drove to the Florida Keys and walked into a tackle shop and met a guy. And he gave me a job, asked me if I could throw a net. And I said, yeah, next thing you know, I got a guy teaching me how to fish for tarpon in the Florida Keys. And I was there ever since 1974 or 1964. So what was he looking to do? Have you guide if you're looking for tarpon? He had, he, he had a couple boats. I walked into it to a, a old bait and tackle store. And I asked that guy if he had any jobs, if he knew anybody was looking for help. And this guy was just a customer in there. And he says, are you, uh, he says, do you know how to throw a net? And I said, yeah. And he says, do you know how to drive a boat? And I said, that's what I did my whole life. It's like, I, I do. And he says, well, he says, meet me at four o'clock at this marina. And I did. And he had, customer on the boat. It was an old inboard boat, single center console boat with a with, with a fighting chair. And we went out and we were actually catching tarpon with a bent butt. It was a old pike tyf tycoon typhoon rod with Ocean City 16 off reel this big and uh, live mullet. And we, my job was to catch the mullet. And then when the fish came in to wire the fish, pull them up, take the hook out, put them on a stringer and tie them off to the side of the boat, put another bait on put it back out again. And I did that for four days. I was the mate. And then he said, I want you to drive the boat and I'll be the mate. Did that for a couple of days. He said, if you want a job, he says, you can drive this boat. I have another one. You can be the mate and the captain. And it went from making $25 a shift to making $60 a shift and plus tips. And they paid us to, you know, if I wanted to fish three three trips a day, I could. They were four-hour fishing trips. Uh, that's how I started. And that lasted like two years. And then I met a guy that was a fly fishing guide. Learned about it, worked for him for a couple of years. Now, once I got that down, I had a house. I built a house on Summerlin Key in the Keys. And I wound up building a 
flats boat by 1965. I had a flats boat and a and, a, and an offshore boat. So and just stayed in the Keys. Got married down there and stayed in the Keys for many years. My wife and I had a bait and tackle shop and a and a resort down there and wound up as a fly shop pretty famous fly shop and we had it had a travel business we sent people fishing all over the world what was the guiding industry like in the 70s had, was it in a was it booming was it just kicking off well in, in the 60s there was only a half a dozen guides that took fly fishermen in all keys which meant in the whole world because there weren't any flats fish from any place else but the keys back then Miami and the Florida Keys. There might have been, you know, 30 guides, 40 guides back then. And there wasn't many for flats guides. And it never got good enough that you could just be a fly fisherman until the early mid 70s. Then by like 1975, 76, you could probably have. 60% 60% of your customers would be fly fishermen. But the only way you would get fly fishermen before that was if somebody gave them to you or if you actually met somebody that was a fly fisherman. There wasn't a lot of them and there was no internet. There was no television advertising or anything. You know, it was, we used to kill the tarpon and hang them up on a, sign next to the boat and people driving by would see the fish say hey i'd like to catch one of them and that was our advertising you know up until i guess 1980 81 my wife and i wound up opening a shop that was called the world class angler in marathon it was in a lighthouse at ferro blanco resort which was the biggest marina resort in the Florida Keys, and we operated this business for from the 1970s all the way up into 91 or 92. I think I sold it in 92 after my wife passed. So we wound up with, I would say, during all those years, the fly fishing took off maybe 75 or 76, and the guides got a lot more guides. I would say that maybe by 1980, there was maybe even 30 or 40 fly fishing guides in the Keys. You know, there was quite a few. uh, Compared to now, that's nothing. But, you know, now there's 500 or 1,000 in each town. There's just crazy. Do you know how fly fishing really started to kick off in the Keys? Not the guiding, but the fishing itself? Well, the Keys was the, the headquarters, really, of the the uh, fly fishing end of the uh, of saltwater. I mean, that's where it was. Lefty Cray was the ran came down. He ran the uh, he ran the, the the Met tournament, which was for the Miami Rod and Reel Club. And the Miami Rod and Reel Club had the they ran the, the world records before the IGFA. The saltwater world records were run out of the Miami Rod and Reel Club. So there was a lot of little things. We had that Met tournament. Everybody fished in that every year. And it was, it was, you got to fish, spin, plug, and fly. And 
it worked up points. Uh, the heaviest tackle that we used back then was 12-pound tippet. Uh, there was nothing any heavier than that. So it was like really, it was hard fishing, and there was some great anglers and great guides back then. Um, the numbers of fish, the water conditions, everything was so much different. That it was totally different than it than it is now. And I just, I just basically, when we had that shop there, wound up meeting a lot of people and people coming in. We were we were really the first booking agency company to book fishing trips to the Florida Keys. Um, even worldwide sportsmen uh, was George Hommel's and Billy Pate's place. They were the the other fly shop. They were in Almorada. We were in Marathon, but they they would book tarpon trips, but they wouldn't book to the Keys because in those days, the Florida Keys guides just didn't believe that they should ever pay a commission to anybody. They thought they were movie stars and didn't. they never wanted to be booked. I wound up with some young guys that worked out to be good, and I started a lot of careers for people. I helped a lot of people get started. But we, you know, we were talking about the tarpon and I had a tournament that I started in the early 1980s and I had planned on doing a tarpon fly fishing tournament and I wanted to do a catch and release tarpon tournament that had never been done before. There was no such thing as a catch and release tarpon tournament. The Gold Cup and Hawley, they were all kill tournaments. And we started this tournament and I booked the guides two years ahead. I had everything set up. And I ran it out of the Fairblank Owen Marathon. And at the same time, there was a company that came out, uh, a guy named John Krisick with Curry Harbor and oh, John Sims and a bunch of different people that are in our industry now were with this company. They called it at that time, the name of the company was Tarpenware. And that was a clothing name. And I got those guys to come down and they put up the money to sponsor the tournament. They got the credit for sponsoring it. I ran it. And it was the first ever catch and release tarpon tournament. It was called the Tarpenware Classic. And we made up these measuring devices that were made out of the different colors from the tarpenware clothing. And we could hook a thing over the lip of the tarpon, stretch it to the to to the dorsal fin and take a picture of it with a with a Polaroid camera using a today's newspaper with the picture in today's newspaper and a date in that photograph and wherever the color was from the front lip stretching that thing back to the dorsal fin Whatever color that was, we, the fish would be between 10 and 20, 20 and 30, 30 and 40, 50 and 100, or, you know, 80 and 100, 100 to 120. And it would just get longer. And I had gone to, like, the three major taxidermists, and they took an average for a year of the measurements. And then we took them and measured them down, and it was just a guess. But it worked, and that's how we ran that tournament. It was it was around for like four years or five years. 
What made you think that it was time to do a catch and release tournament? I just had been doing some trout fishing and stuff out west and in other locations. And they were already doing catch and release stuff out there. And when, you know, there was a lot of other people that were doing catch and release in other areas, but we were not doing it yet with Tarpon. And that was just kind of, we had started doing it as far as releasing fish with charters, because that's the time when the, the transition from skin mounts to artist reproductions was going on. And they were the guys, some of the customers that we had were, were actually killing tarpon to make mounts, to make molds so that they would be able to make mounts out of them. And they wanted all different sizes. So I was involved in, in, in a bunch of that before they actually before they actually stopped it and it, it took a while but that was the first tournament that did it what was the gear and like back then by that time uh the fiberglass rods were out and, and people were using fiberglass um fenwick was a one uh, llama glass they were they were building glass rods in the 60s and 70s Right. Up to the eighties, and the guys that actually owned those companies were Don Green and Gary Loomis that actually switched around and went into starting the carbon fiber uh, fly rods. But can you give us some reference to what it was like, just even a, a little bit? And let me give you some context. Have you seen that video that the Fly Fishing Museum has with the guys? It looks like it's in the sixties, maybe it's earlier. And they're catching all these, I think it's their tarpon in the saltwater on cane rods. It's a man and his wife in the boat. Do you know approximately what year that was and and kind of how the switch came to be? I don't know. Um, I, I've seen I've seen some stuff that the IGFA showed uh, some videos of, and I remember. Um, oh God, I'm trying to remember the names of the people. Um, Doc Robinson and his wife, they were the first couple. He was the first guy to catch a sailfish on fly in the Keys. And back then, I mean, I remember some people fishing with cane, but it was really before me that that was going on. I, d I just don't have the memory of that. I know guys that had all that equipment. Uh, one of the guys that that mentored me was a guy named Harry Snow Sr. And Harry Snow Sr. now would be, I'm like 81. He would probably be, be 130, 40. He was old when I met him. And he, 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 he was a cook when they were building the Overseas Railroad in the 1930s, 1920s. And then he wound up, after feeding the workers that were building the railroad, he wound up being a guide. And I got one of his old fly reels. He uh, he gave me a gift of an old fly reel that he had. It was an old Vomhoff German fly reel. And, that, and he had a, 
he had that on a on a bamboo, big heavy bamboo fly rod. But I I don't have a lot of memory of that stuff. You know, I remember different phases of my life, but life was not a, you know, it wasn't a bowl of cherries. I worked a lot and and fished a lot. Marlene and I ran that shop, and at the same time, I was manufacturing fly reels in Argentina and running a, a fly reel manufacturing company, running a fly shop tackle store in the Keys, and I was guiding two, three trips a day during tarpon season, all at the same time. So we were pretty busy there for a while, and then we took a we took a couple of years and took off and. I got in the antique boat business, started working on antique boats in Fort Lauderdale. I got lucky and got a, I got involved in a boat yard up there and we ran a, for four years, I ran a boat yard restoring antique boats. And from being around the boat yard when I was a kid with my dad, I knew a little bit about wooden boats and got involved in that. We ran that for four years, then sold it, and then got a lot of money out of it. And the reason that we built it up was to make the money. It was like not a career. And then we went and we fished pretty much all over the world for blue marlin, black marlin on heavy tackle uh, about five months a year uh, for five years until the money was gone. And then we came back to the Keys and continue in our in our pursuit of uh, making a living in the fishing business what called you to making reels <laughs> i have i have an engineering background from my dad from studying the machinist and the engineering stuff that he knew but i'm not educated in it other than than self-educated um i was always interested in Braking systems and drags in uh, braking systems, even in automobiles. I just thought they were fascinating, the engineering behind things that slow things down. And, uh, and of course, fishing reels. Uh, I've just always been enamored with fishing reels. I wound up with, uh, I got a book from a guy about a river in Argentina and it was a gratuity for taking a guy fishing. He wrote this book about this river in Argentina. And I told my wife, I said, if we're going to be selling fishing trips, I need to go here and check this out. Some of the best trout fishing in the world. So I took off and I went, and this was like in the early 1970s. I flew to Argentina. I flew to Buenos Aires and I rented a Ford F-100 pickup truck that was built in and I drove it 800 kilometers to Junín de los Andes, which is right on the right on the Chimiwin River and in, uh, in the Andes Mountains there in, in uh, Argentina. And I wound up staying at a place called the Hostelleria de Chimiwin. Once I got my room and I got things figured out, and I was going to just go trout fishing because I had this book that I had started. I met a couple guys there was a guy on the, the room next to me on the right hand side 
turned out to be a, a, a great fly caster. His name was Mel Krieger. And Mel was on this side of me. And on this side of me was a guy named Billy Pate, who I knew oh, from the <laughs> okay. And I wound up talking to those guys and meeting people and stuff. I went out. I was out fishing this river. Um, and it's just a weird story, but it's a cool story. I There were some fish that were under a willow tree on the far side of the Chimiwin River on this private land that I had permission to go on and fish. And I had gone upriver and downriver like four miles, and there was no place to get across the river. So I'm in there, and I'm using the old Florida Keys um, guide. Throwing these casts, and these fish were about 95 feet from me. And I'm trying to get this fly across to these rainbow trout that are eating bugs fall, falling off of this willow tree. I got, I could get five feet from them, four feet from them, and it was deep. There's no rocks. There just wasn't a way. I, I could have swam across, I guess, but I, there was no way to get there. And this man came walking out of the, came walking up the river. He said, uh, he said uh, good morning. Uh, no, he, he said, buenos dias, amigo. And I said, I don't speak any Spanish. I said, I'm an American. He says, well, that's no problem. I speak fluent English. And I said, cool. He says, uh, maybe I could be some of some assistance. I've seen you trying to get to these trout. I said, yeah. I says, I can't get there. I says, I'm, you know, I says, I'm a pretty good caster. And I, I had a, you know, I got a five weight rod, an old five weight rod. And I got a, a double paper line on it. Make a long story short. He said, well, maybe I can help you. And he, uh, he said, you'll have to trust me. But I promise you that you'll catch some of these fish. So he took my, it was a, it was not a double taper. It was a weight forward because he took and he stripped the line off the rod about 30 feet of it. And he took his scissors and he cut my fly line. I said, what are you doing? He says, you have to trust me, senor. And he took the rest of the fly line off and he cut it off. And he took a spool out of his little bag and it was this kind of burgundy colored stuff that looked like monofilament, but it was flat, but it was like a purple burgundy color. And he tied a knot, he tied that to the backing and he went like this and he measured it, put out about 80 feet of this stuff or 90 feet of it, tied it onto the reel and he wound it on the reel. And then he took that and he tied a nail knot and tied it to the 30-foot piece in the front of my fly line, tied that on. So I had never seen a shooting head. I didn't know what they were. I had no idea. And he says, now, he says, when you cast this thing, he said, you just swing it around like an elliptical cast and cast it like you're casting a plug rod, like you're casting a jig. And he says, that'll go all the way across the room. And I said, man, I said, I don't know. And he says, well, he says, would you like me to show you? And I said, yeah, why don't you show me? So he picked up my rod and he goes, waltz, boop, and he pinches it off. The fly drops with a lot of slack in the line. 
a dry fly went two feet, got sucked in, and he caught like an eight-pound rainbow. I said, holy crap. He said, why don't you try it? First cast, boom, same thing. This man turned out to be an engineer, machinist that had worked on the design of some of the early CNC machines, the computer-assisted lathes and milling machines, wrote programs. He was a brilliant, smartest guy I ever met. And we became friends, had some drinks, fished together. I went back home, invited him and his family to come to the Florida Keys to fish, and they came up, and I took him tarpon fishing. When he came up, he handed me a reel, and he says, here, I made this for you. Apparently, he had this machine that he had worked for a company named George Fisher, and they ran, they built these giant machines that are used all over the world in building stuff, lathes and milling machines. And he had to, was the designer, and then he was the salesman for all of, like, Central Europe. And he got high blood pressure had to retire, almost had a stroke, and he wound up going to uh, wound up going to to uh, Argentina, where he was born. He was born in Buenos Aires and educated in Switzerland, and he wound up moving back. And they gave him one of these machines, and he had it in his garage. And as a hobby, if he met somebody he liked on the river, he would build him a fishing reel with the machine from scratch. So. He brought me this tarpon reel that he built me, and it was pretty awesome. The next year, I took my friend Gary Loomis and Susan and my wife Marlene, and we went to Argentina, down to Hunin, and we hung around with Roberto and Mary and their family, and we fished for a couple of weeks. And Gary saying, Gary had just started the G. Loomis company, and he had left Lammerglass, and he had just started G. Loomis. And he says, dude, he says, man, you know so much about reels. He says, why don't you see if this guy will build you some, and you guys work together. And I made a proposal, and Roberto said yes, and wound up with a factory down in Junín de los Andes, Argentina. First customer was Orvis. We built Orvis reels for a couple of years, and then wound up building reels for L.L. Bean and Cabela and Bass Pro and Cortland and our own brand was STH. And that was what we started. Ran that up into the 1990s, I guess. We were by the by the late 80s, we were the largest manufacturer marine of machined anodized fly reels in the world. And this was before like Lampson and and Ross got into it. We were building them for years before them, and then they got got into it. They we were still way bigger than them, and then just business practices changed, and things changed. And by by the early nineties, I had been in there long enough, and was no longer had a wife, and I was in. I had made up my mind what I wanted to do. And I, I just didn't want to be in, have a, have all my money tied up in building fly reels and selling fly reels. And 
I, I was really a fisherman. That's it worked out to be a great thing. I I did a lot. I built that business up, and then it was bought by Cortland. Four years after Cortland, three years after they bought it, they ran it into the ground, and it went under. But it was a pretty cool company, and uh, that was how I got in. And after that was over, I got hired by a guy named Ray Prasgoda, who had been in charge of Zepco, and he was working for Penn in Philadelphia Penn Reels. And he hired me, and I worked on the braking system and the design of the Penn International fly reels. Um, during that time, I had become friends with a guy from Australia that you probably heard about and ran into Jack Erskine. Jack and I became really good friends. He knew more about drags and reels than anybody that ever lived. And I was, I, he was my guru that I went to for information. And we got into carbon fiber drags when everybody else was building, was building uh, cork drags after, after the asbestos went away, you weren't allowed to use it anymore. They went to cork and the cork was like, okay, but it was never good. And uh, we got into that and I worked on the design of those reels with Ray and then Got out of that, and I. By this time, I had been. My wife was gone. I was. I was kind of made up my mind that what I was going to do for the rest of my life was catch build fish on the fly. That's what I like. I like big fish that jump on the fly using IGFA tackle, IGFA twenty pound or less. Why not tarpon? Why billfish? Well, anything that jumps was good, but I had made up when I had the real company and had to, and I had the shop and I was looking for customers. I partnered up with a guy named Bob Hyde. Uh, Bob was originally out of the Keys, but he wound up over in the Bahamas and we wound up putting together a deal and building a bonefish lodge over there. But before that, after Pinling had been the prime minister over there. And when he got defeated, there was a lot of kids over there that had never done anything except smuggle drugs. And there was just a lot of people didn't work. And uh, all the old bonefish guides had died off and there was no bonefish guides. So um, I went down there with Bobby and we like worked and wrote a program to train young bonefish guides, put that together. And I started again, 1976, maybe. We started a thing called the Bonefish School. You could probably Google it. It'll still pop up. Um, it was really the first saltwater fly fishing school. And we lived in, in the Keys and we operated out of the Keys and I guided in the Keys. But I did my school in Exuma in the Bahamas because you couldn't take somebody and give them a two-day class and then send them out with a guide in the Florida Keys and catch them a bonefish because it was too hard. 
But the bone fishing in the Bahamas was so simple and easy, and there was millions of fish. They were smaller. But I took thousands and thousands of people that read my ad that came to the, came to the Bahamas, and we taught them to tie flies, to put the line on the backing on the reel, to tie the knots, to put the fly line on, to build their leaders, to tie the flies, to fill up their fly box, to cast, to double haul. And we did all this in their first two days of the school. And then after those two days of instructions, they would go out, two students and a guide, or two students and an educator and a guide, and they would go for four days of bone fishing. So everybody got to fish with at least one of their instructors. And back then I had Lefty and God, Steve Ray Jeff. I had a lot of guys working for me that would come down there and teach in my school. And we wound up creating enough fly fishermen that we never had to run an advertisement for that little lodge we had with the eight rooms and, and, and the eight guides that we had. Never, never ran an ad one time ever. Just the bonefish school filled it up with clients and we were busy year round. And the reason that I always thought was if I could teach people to go fly fishing and catching fish, they're going to buy fly reels, which is what I make. And then they're going to buy rods and they're going to buy reels and lines and everything. So I was just creating more fly fishermen and more customers for me to guide. So it wasn't like any big idea. That's just how I started. And then running those schools, a lot of those guys wanted to catch bigger fish, try something different. So they come to the Keys and they'd fish with me or I'd book them in the Keys with other guides. And I created a lot of business for other guides in the Keys. And then the tarpon fishing, you know, the flats fishing, the, the, the bone fishing and permit fishing and stuff down there was just part of the daily life. But I would do I would do 16 people at a time in the Bahamas for like five months in a row. And I mean, we were just pumping the people through there, teaching them to fly fishing, creating customers. And we never took anybody that did not catch a dozen bonefish on fly. So I never had a customer that didn't catch any. So then I'm starting to do it in the keys, in the in the in the uh, in the keys, and I had already gotten into. I mean, I was into catching billfish in the keys myself but i wasn't guiding people at it i was chasing them with a fly rod and hell i spent 13 years and hooked 119 blue marlin before i caught the first one so 13 years i chased them without catching one now i've caught almost 100 but 80 of them were in the last 10 years but I met many, many years where we would go five years and then you catch a blue. 
This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. In 1991, when I sold the shop, lost Marlene, I wound up making a conscious decision that what I really wanted to do was catch billfish. That's what I really, really liked. I wanted to do that and get better at it. I had worked down in Costa Rica for a little while. I had run schools in Venezuela and in Panama. But I really got into my sailfish schools were mainly in Panama and Costa Rica. And then when they opened up, well, before they opened up Guatemala, I wound up going up there in 1993 and started my sailfish school in Guatemala. And, and I was 93 the first year. So this is the 30th year of running my sailfish school. And I've run thousands and thousands and thousands of people through that that caught their first sailfish ever on fly. And then I was doing stuff in Mexico where we were doing striped marlin. I did seven years where we were in the Galapagos, taking people fly fishing for striped marlin. I did half a dozen trips to Australia and did black marlin in Australia. And then I was in Dominican Republic because they shut down Venezuela. And I heard this buddy of mine called me up and says, hey, we found this place in off of Costa Rica that's spectacular. And and I went fishing and it was spectacular. It was the best blue marlin fishing of all times. And that was only 10 years ago. And then I started, I hooked up with a guy and we started this Costa Rica blue marlin fly fishing school and uh, trained crew, found customers. I thought it was very expensive because you got it. It's a week-long deal, and we're burning a lot of fuel and everything. It's very expensive. I thought a few people would buy us. And, and 
do their like uh, I thought it would be a you know a pocket list thing, and as it turned out, from the first day we never had any days that we didn't land Blue Marlin on a fly, and we were lucky in the beginning, but we had caught thousands of sailfish and some blue marlin and some striped marlin, so we knew a little bit, but still at that point we still had a lot to learn and over that we had what made us so good is that we had more shots at catching blue marlin than any other boats ever anywhere in the world and we wound up over the last 10 years we've got right around 500 blue marlin in 10 years that we've landed on fly and we've got Averaging two blue marlin per day landed on 20-pound class tippet on fly fishing all IGFA regulations. Um, last year, we got we wound up catching, I think, 99 in 33 days, which is three a day. Uh, but I still don't – I've never taken anybody that hasn't caught one, like man, woman, or child. And I, I had a couple of your clients that went out with me a couple of times and boy, they just slammed them. They uh, raved that, about it. They went oh, on. Was, oh, had a great the, time. The lady, she, she, she wound up to be a great, a great fisherman. I really, they both are good fishermen, but she was very special and uh, natural at it. Diane. But, yeah. Diane. Yep. She's they're Amazing. Yeah very special person. They're very special people, but I, you know, I have clients today that go down there and catch. It's not uncommon. I have one client that, that actually fished a three day period and caught 26. So, I mean, it, the numbers are just absolutely incredible what we do. And I'm, you know, I'm 81 years old. I can still step back here and throw a fly and land everyone I cast to. I mean, that's how good that we've gotten at it. We've, we've developed, I've developed flies hooks, rigging, leaders, all the techniques that that are used today. I've worked with, I guess, over the last 30 years working with the guides and the captains in Guatemala and Hawaii and Australia and sharing. And then guys that do it every day are always calling me and saying, hey, we tried this, this works. And I worked with manufacturers. I wound up hooking up with Jack Charlton when he was just doing the original Charlton reels and he was still putting cork drags in them. And I had just finished the deal with Penn and I went over and I talked to him about the carbon fiber drags and he switched over and the rest is history. His reels got really good. He lost the company in a little business deal and that went bad, but couple of years later after his non-compete he and i worked together with judy and really developed this make a real thing and it's if for anybody that i can actually spend a little bit of time with describing what we do with these reels and how they work that reel is the basis between behind being able to consistently catch two, three, 400 pound fish on 20 pound tippet. You can do it on a tie bore or an able or 
name any reel. It doesn't matter. And accidentally, you'll catch one once in a while. But the engineering behind the braking system and that drags in that reel is what makes it consistent. In Mako reels? Yeah, the Mako reel. What What is it that um, makes it so different? You see the little dots? This is the drag system. You go from here, this is the dot here, and you bring it over to the first dot, which is right there. That is exactly one pound of pressure. If a blue marlin eats this, you cannot break the 20-pound tippet unless you touch the handle. It's impossible. So when they eat the fly, blue marlin always eat the fly going sideways. They either go left to right or right to left. They don't ever come from behind or in front of it. They only eat it this way or this way. So when they eat the fly, the, the side of the mouth that's closer to you hits the bite tippet. The fly swings back inside their mouth and hook hooks them inside the mouth. They're going so fast, they're five times faster than any other fish except maybe a bluefin. And when they hit that thing, it goes in and it hooks them. If you have two pounds of drag set on your reel or if you touch the handle, while they're gone away, they're gone. They broke them off. Mm-hmm. They break the 20 pound. Learn that but if you have way. one pound <laughs> and you just point it at them, they're never, ever going to break it. They can't. So they can run. And then the, the fly line and the, and, the, and the running line in here that I've developed, so thin and it's got like a little certain amount of stretch to it and little things that when they get out a certain way because of the sinking line that I use close to it's a short sinking line but it's close to the close to the the butt section or close to the leader um when you hook a blue marlin this line as they get out 100 feet away from you starts to sink in the water so they feel that line pulling down on their face like this and as it's pulling down they want to get away from it they come up and they jump and they're jumping going away from you like they're greyhounding the reason they're jumping is because they feel this thing pulling down on them they're trying to get away from it going up if you tighten the drag up to two pounds then it tightens up and they feel it pulling up on their face they turn their pecs they go down and the next thing you know you're fighting a fish with 20 pound test that weighs 200 pounds you can't move so you don't ever want them to go down all of our fish stay on top the whole time and I let them jump themselves out whatever pulling on. We're never pulling on the fish that we're fighting, ever. Fish are just jumping, going crazy, and they're trying to get away from that line. And then we're just backing up, putting the slack back on. And I have a little rubber band in there in the line that'll stretch in case the fish surges. I've got little things that I've developed that just make it so that the fish wears themselves out quickly, <laughs> trying to get away from you. And we discovered this by having thousands of shots and using every possible idea that everybody ever threw at us. We tried them all. And, and, and somebody comes up with an idea, let's try this. Let's try this fly. Let's try this leader. Let's try this reel. If there was a better reel in the world than this, I would buy them. I just feel that very few people that fly fish even know 
how to use a drag properly on a reel. And none of the reels 25 years ago had good drags on them before these came out and before the, those pen reels. None of them were really good that you could apply the amount of pressure that we need to apply steady to catch these fish. Uh, it, it just changed everything for me and and for my clients. I take I can take your little baby and catch him with blue marlin. I mean, it's like unbelievable what we can do. I remember the first marlin I ever hooked on a fly. It's all very exciting, and my husband goes adjust your drag. And I just assumed that meant to tighten my drag, which I did. And of course, immediately it was gone. Wow. Yeah. And that's it. It's gone. And then, and then in the old days, you wouldn't see another one for three years. Yeah. Well, that's about how it went. <laughs> so then you forgot everything. Yeah. <laughs> so what we did was we, what I have done in my life is I figured out ways that I can actually, I have captains, mates boats that are available all over the world that have learned my techniques that we have taught and work together that love to fly fish so if you go back 18 years ago maybe 15 years ago nobody in the world had a had ever caught an IGFA billfish royal slam. That's all nine species of billfish. There had been a couple of hundred people catch them unconventional or conventional and fly mixed. No one had ever done it on fly, ever. Now there are nine IGFA royal billfish slams on fly. They're all my customers. Can you list the nine species for people who have no idea? Yeah, we're talking about Atlantic and Pacific blue marlin, Atlantic and Pacific sailfish. That's four. And you got a white marlin in the Atlantic, the striped marlin in the Pacific, and the black marlin in the Pacific is seven. Then you have the spearfish, and there's three different kinds of spearfish, but they only have the any spearfish counts as a spearfish and the swordfish. Those are the, the nine species. And there's now nine of them. One guy has four. One of my customers has got four. And, and we're working on catching them some more swordfish and some more marlin. One of the things I was really surprised about is how easy sailfish are compared to marlin. Their world, world sailfish apart. are skinny. And they, I have a, I have a, I have a system that everybody that's fished with me knows about, and it, it's a fish rating, power, speed rating for all different kinds of fish. And you start out with a tarpon and a sailfish in three hundred feet of water with the same exact tackle, tackle, same boat, same fly, assuming they're both there. They have a speed to power rating of X. A sailfish and a tarpon are equal in deep water. The, the tarpon's a little bit stronger, sailfish a little bit faster, but they're about the same as far as a power speed combined. Then you would go and you would say a 100-pound tarpon and a 100-pound sailfish have a rating of X. 
a hundred pound striped marlin or a hundred pound white marlin has a speed power rating of XX, two X's, 50% faster, 50% stronger. Then you go to a hundred pound black marlin, different ball game, three X's. So that's hundred pound black is three times stronger and faster than a hundred pound sailfish. Then you go to a blue marlin and it's got six to 10 X's. Oh, that's why. Pounds. A bluefin tuna would be about equal, except they don't jump. They're, they're the only thing that has the same, basically the same pulling power as a, as a blue marlin, but I don't, you know, the, the big marlin eat tuna. So is the blue the hardest in your opinion? Blue is the hardest as far as the marlins are concerned. That said, swordfish is the hardest to get because they're, they're they're never on the surface that you can tease them up, or very rarely that you can tease them in and cast a fly. So we had to develop ways to do what we do with the tarpon and catch them at night. We had to do that with the swordfish. We've developed ways to tease them up. But the swordfish, our experience up until now with the guys that really know what they're doing is about you get a you catch one about every 22 days of fly fishing for them. So you got to put 22 days in. And when I say 22 days, I'm talking about sundown to sun up. It's, it's pretty crazy the amount of time that we have to put in. Um, spearfish is the most rare, but you can go to Hawaii at a certain time of the year and get a certain guy. And he knows where they are, and we can catch all we want. The blacks, you can go to Exmouth, or you can go over to Port Stevens. There's there's quite a few places, you know, uh, up on the reef. There's places inside the reef where you can go Townsville and catch the small blacks on fly. That's mm-hmm. not a it's not a hard thing. I mean, you got to put the time in, and you got to go do it. Nobody ever just it is a, a, one one of my good friends, Rufus Waitman, tried to do it in a year. And he still never has done it. He's not one of the nine. Uh, but but he's a good friend, and, and I really like him. He's a great fisherman. But he went all the way and caught eight, which I have probably 13 clients that have eight. And he, uh, he never got his swordfish. He fished for him for 20-some days and just gave up. Just quit. It's too hard. Expensive for people who don't know. I mean, a day on a boat can be three thousand dollars. It's no question. It's not. This is not. That is not a sport for people that don't have money. You have to have the money to be able to do that. And and I like, you know, I'm not a rich person. I I'm, I'm just a working guy, and I've developed relationships. What I found is that. Many, many, many of my clients are guys that are that are like on the board of directors of IGFA or Billfish Foundation or big time big game fishermen, and, and or they're just guys that are big time fly fishermen that are tarpon guys or something, and they can afford to do it, 
but never even thought about it. And then one of their buddies does it and tells them about it. And then that's where they come. But I thought this was going to be a, when I started the Blue Marlin thing, I thought it was going to be a, a, a like a, a bucket list deal. I'll get one and that's it. This year I, I have, uh, I just finished my season. My season is June 1st to September 1st. And we try to fish 12 weeks or 13 weeks. We go out every Monday. We come in every Friday. We catch blue marlin every day. My, I have 12 weeks available for charter. Nine of them were booked the day the customers got off the boat for next year. So I have three, three to sell and I have 20 people that want to buy them. So I'm, I'm very blessed to have that kind of a business. The business has been good for us. And the fact that there isn't anybody else that's going out there and catching them. There's other people. Um, you know, there's a guy that copied my mailing list that's sending out to all my customers and stuff. And he's advertising that he does it, but they can't catch him on a fly. They just don't know how. So we know how to do it. We're pretty good at it. We like it. And I love sharing it with people. I love showing people what we do. But you still have to put the time in and go do it. And no matter what you're talking about, you know, the boat that we're fishing on was had a $800,000 upgrade a couple of years ago. You know, it's not buying the boat. That's just upgrading it. You know? So it's it, t- it takes a lot of money. What is the biggest error that you see most people make when it comes to marlin fishing? And I don't mean rank beginners. I mean, someone like myself who's done a bit, but is certainly not a pro. What do you think is the biggest difference between the decent marlin anglers and the, the ones that you turn into great anglers? I'll, t- I'll tell you the story that I tell everybody that starts saltwater fly fishing with me. The biggest mistake that people make is that they allow the fish after it's hooked to bend the rod. I believe that you should never, ever allow that fish, no matter what trick he uses on you, no matter what he tries to do, don't let him bend that rod. Because if he bends the rod, that means you're squeezing the rod so he so he can bend it. If your hand's open and you're not squeezing it, It'll just follow him around and it won't bend. But as soon as you bend the rod, then every muscle in your body is working. He's going to wear you out quickly. If you just hold the rod loose in your hand and just let him go wherever he wants to run and wind with your dominant hand, don't try to wind with your non-dominant hand because you're not fast enough. You're fast enough for sailfish and you're fast enough for dark, but you're not fast enough for mile. You had to wind with your dominant hand because you have to pick up line really fast. But you're never pulling on the fish to do that. You're just, at, at, as the fish is running and jumping, the boat's back and toward him. We got this real thin running line, this little thin spectrum. And all you're doing is picking up the slack. If we go faster than the fish, we're just putting that slack back on a reel. Then he takes it off. Then you put it on and he takes it off. And it's one pound of pressure. So he don't even feel you. He can't get that line tight. Come tight and break it. It's just like a big loop in there. And all you're doing is putting that slack on. When he takes off, you point it at him and you let him go. And put it back on and take it off. So you got to be able to wind really fast. But I would say that the biggest mistake is that, that if you if you don't listen to what I say or talk to me before you go, the 
biggest mistake that everybody makes is trying to pull on the fish and bend the rod. And that just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I mean, every once in a while, somebody catches one accidentally. There's people that accidentally catch them. But it's just because they got a fish that just didn't do its job. What if they sound? What do you do well, then? If, if the if, if the vessel, if they sound on their own, and it's not because you're pulling on them, but they just eat the fly and decide to go down, you point it at them and they get down there, sooner or later they're going to get down there and just going to stop, and you're feeling like you're doing this, and you're not coming in or going out, and by this time you get the drag turned up, and you're just trying to pump them towards the top. And you gain a little bit, maybe three times, and then all of a sudden, he runs back down, same place. Well, that's basically the line stretching and then unstretching and stretching and unstretching. Can you see me standing up here? Yep. Can you see my hands? Yes. You want to wind down, pull, wind down, pull. You're not lifting. You're pulling in a straight line, the same as you would if you were pulling with the overhand overhand. Don't try to lift him with the rod because you got the short end of the lever. He has the long end and he can kill you. Yeah. Secondly, if he goes down and he's stuck and you get, you spend 30 seconds, fish isn't moving, he's down there and, and, and he's just going slowly going away. There's nothing you can do. Point the rod at him, relax your hand, hold the rod so it's just pointing wherever the line's going. Hold the rod. You can hold it up like this so that the captain can see the handle. And have the captain drive away from him and then turn left and run the boat around in a big giant circle all the way around him. And have the line just going out, going out, going out, going out. And maybe, maybe go in a 200 meter circle it's 200 meters to the other side all the way around here and just hold the rod and let it go out let it go out let it go out all of a sudden tighten your drag up a little bit and you'll find that there's a there's like a big bow in that line that's going like this point the rod at him and then start to wind you're not going to break him because you're just pulling the line out of that bow and the, the captain if the fish is here He's going to basically, you're, the fish has got his tail up at you, so you're trying to pull him backwards. So we're going to take the boat, and we're going to drive over this way and go around in a big circle. So now you're in front of the fish. He's pointing this way, and you're here. Fish can only swim frontwards. They can't back up. So if you're here and he's here, and you're pulling this way, you can pull his head up, and he can swim towards you. But if you're over top of him, you're just trying to pull up, and he's got his tail pointing at you. There's no way to back them up. You have to actually think about what the fish is doing. Do you have to use, sense. it makes perfect sense. Do you have to use the boat? Fish can't back up. So you got to drive the boat around. But do you have to that's use it? How, how could team. you, how would you fare if you didn't it's use the boat? It's a team sport. It, it is. That's, that's, I think what I love about it is that it is a team sport. Yeah. And, and, and regular boat captains that are great, Marlin fishermen. I know a lot of them that are great grander fishermen that are really, really good Marlin fishermen. I know 
thousands of them realistically. I mean, I've got a very, very big list of people that, that are my friends that are in that business. The number of guys that know what to do when you got a fly, a fish on a fly on 20 pound are very, very, very limited. You know, Gary Carter that does the, that, that fishes for the world records with the IGFA. He just caught the men's world record blue marlin on fly using my reel and all my lines and stuff, all my equipment. And basically you just gotta, you can't, you can't defeat a fish by just being strong. You have to be smarter than the fish and an angler themselves. It's even like you get a, get a 150 pound tarpon. And I have clients that, to this day, I'll say, well, this is no fun. You're following the fish. Why are you pulling after him? I want to fight him from a dead boat. Okay. I drop an anchor. Now you're fighting him from a dead boat. Fish just takes all the backing and then breaks the knot. You can't stop him. But you can't be pulling on the tail of a fish that's got a lot more horsepower than you. He can break that 20-pound tip at any time he wants to. You have to wear them out, and you have to figure out ways to wear them out, and that's what I did. At 81, what's the long-term plan? Do you want to slow down, or are you going to do this till you can't? I have, you know, I've had a lot of health things in my life. I've got two artificial hips, an artificial ankle, a six-level spinal fusion in my lower back, a three-level in my neck, two stents inside of my heart. And uh, and a drippy eye, and uh, you know I still I usually fish fifty days here in Albacore and drum season, and f- fifty trips out of sixty days, and I fish fifty uh, fifty trips in the Florida Keys for tarpon out of sixty days, and I usually put. 50 or 60 days in the Florida Keys. I mean, in uh, Guatemala, running my sailfish schools. And then I do another, I think I do close to 35 or 40 fishing days in Costa Rica. Usually do a week or two in Hawaii. Um, The answer to the question is that I want to keep doing it as long as I can. I've got young people that I have been mentoring. I have guys from Alaska that work with me in the Keys that are every bit as good as I am tarpon fishing. So my customers are going to be taken care of if I don't go. Last year when I was getting inducted into the into the uh, Southern Fly Fishing Hall of Fame, they that I, I had my mate ran like eight days of charters and he's no problem. So they. That those guys can handle that. I got a young man that is a brilliant kid that Lefty and I got him when he was 11 and started mentoring him. He's now like he just turned 18 and just got his captain's license. His name is Braden Miller. Look, look up Miller Time Flies. Great kid. He's going to be working with me here doing the albacore fishing. So he's a, I have a licensed captain on the boats that are mates, but I'm teaching them. I'm teaching them everything that I know so that when I have to 
slow down or step down. I've got somebody to take over. And then I've got a young guy that was flying F-18s for the Marine Corps for the last nine years that just quit in March, just retired from the Marine Corps, stopped flying. He's 32 years old, grew up on the water fishing, and he's got the bug, and he loves marlin and sailfish fly fishing. So he just went to my schools with me, and he's, he fished seven of my schools this year with my customers. The customers like him. He's got it down. I got him rigging their lines and, you know, putting the equipment together. He, he, he knows it all. He's a really good guy. And then I've got another guy that works with me in Guatemala. So I have, not only do I have the list of the customers, but I have assistants that are all ready to step in and take over so that I can keep affording to talking to you on a computer. <laughs> And eat every day. So that's it. When am I going to quit? I'm not ready to quit. Right now I'm working with the Coast Guard trying to get a new medical certificate, which is good for another three years. And I've already got everything done, but I had to have to take a uh, nuclear stress test. And I was supposed to go in there on Thursday, but somebody broke the machine. So I can't get in there until next week. That's just the, that's the stuff I do on my little boat. I don't need licenses for what I do in the billfish, and I can keep doing that as long as I feel like it. I wanna. I don't like. I don't like airports and traveling with through through the world on airplanes. I I had a discussion at a birthday party last night with a guy about remembering 24 years ago you would walk up to the ticket counter and pick up your ticket and give them the money and then you would take your ticket and you would walk over to the gate and you would show them the ticket and walk on the plane with nothing in between there was no such thing as tsa there was no security and i can remember when you bought a plane ticket that was just a ticket. And you stand in line to get on the plane. If you didn't decide not to go, you could give it to the guy with next to you and he could use it. Oh, really? Yeah. They used to sell tickets from Marathon, Florida to, 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 to Miami and back. It was $50 a ticket. But if you bought 10 tickets, they were 400 And I used to buy 10 tickets. And then you would go stand in line to get on the plane, go on to Miami. And if the plane was full, you just waited for the next plane. And if you changed your mind, somebody needed a ticket, say, here, take mine. And the, the ticket, nobody ever knew who you were. They didn't ask you who you were. When I was flying in the old days, nobody ever knew your name on an airplane. I mean, they didn't, nobody tracked you or anything. That's, that's all new. Did you have to dress up? You didn't have to, but people did. Everybody, you know, that was a special event. It's like going to church. Well, yeah, you, you, you people people dressed nicely. They they weren't they were not just casual, and I like that. But it is what it is. Yeah, everything changes. I don't mind the change. You know, I just was writing something on on uh, Danny Blanton's made a post and I just on the Facebook and I just wrote something about it at 
about the new young guys compared to the old experience that we had years ago. The young guys know more than we did because we found stuff out, but now all that's available on the computer and they have charts that have all the flats and you can look at them from outer space. The the charts of the Florida Keys used to be all blue between between the reef coming in from the ocean and the reef on the backside all into the islands was all was all blue, just blue. There was no depth or no channels marked, nothing. And we had to figure out where everything was. It was really different, a lot different than it is now. That said, it, uh, I think that the, that the young guys have to know a lot more and they have to be a lot better than we were because they've got where we had couple of dozen flats boats in the entire Florida Keys. Now there are thousands on every island and it's not only other guides, but there are thousands of uh, private people buying boats and just being out there in the road and nobody knows anything about courtesy or, or, you know, how to act. So that those things change, but the kids are really good. The young guides, I mean, I, I think that the young guides with the great anglers are better than we were as good guides with great anglers. We we had we had the fishing was better, it was easier, but we did it with horrible equipment. Every I mean when I when I started every fishing hook, you would never think of taking a fishing hook out of a package and tying it on and going fishing. You had to sharpen it with a file, every hook. They came out where you couldn't puncture your skin with them. That's all changed. Yeah. (laughs) You got any more for me? Nope. I'm wrapped up. I'm so happy to hear how it all started. I mean, I've, I've been watching over the last probably 15 years, kind of what you're up to, but I didn't know all the way back, but, um, Yeah, very interesting. Do you have anything that I've missed that you'd like to add? Anybody wants to catch fish, give me a call. Yeah, how can people reach you, by the way? What's the best way? The best way is by telephone. Perfect. And WhatsApp. Yeah. And, you know, put my number out there if you like. Do you want to just Uh, say it while I've got you on here and I'll also include it in the write-up? Yeah, you can reach me at 305-872-6060. And I answer a lot of questions. I I have people send me their reels and ask me to rig them up when they're going to go bill fishing. Because 99% of the fly shops don't know how to make a connection. Mm-hmm. They don't have any idea what we're doing with these lines or anything. I mean, I they're, they're basically handmade. You know, I, Rio and uh, Cortland and SA all make a line that'll work. But uh, putting them together on the reel is something that it's you don't use the same type of connections and stuff that you would in tarpon fishing. It's a totally different ball game. And I I share, you know, you want the knowledge, call me up and I'll give it to you. Or I do take emails and texts, but, you know, the best way to get information from me is to talk to me. And what about your, your mailing list? Because I love your newsletter. Can people, how do people get on that? Send me an email. And, uh, you know, you can follow me on 
Facebook and Instagram. I post on air almost every day. And then I do a fishing report. I used to do it a lot more, but it's really hard for me now because they made it hard to do that unless you use like a constant contact or something. I used to do it all myself. And I just don't have the time. But with the with the iPhone, I can take the pictures and post them right away on the Instagram and Facebook. So I'm constantly putting stuff on there. That's the best way to read about me. Or send me an email requesting to be on my fishing report mailing list. And that's, uh, you can do it, jake at jakejordan.com. And that's kind of, we'll get you on there. Just send me a note saying you want to get on there and I'll put you on and you'll get them. Sometimes I do them every week and sometimes I do them once every three months. Yeah, It all depends on, you know, how I'm feeling. I don't use the computer as much as I used to. But you asked me when I'm going to quit. My my plan is I've always, I've had about, I guess I've had seven Labrador retrievers, Labrador and Chesapeake retrievers in my life. And uh, I haven't had one in the last um, 17 years. And my goal is to, when I stop international travel, then I'll be able to travel inside of the U S and to places I can drive to and I can take a dog with me and I'm going to get a puppy. And then from the time I get that puppy, whatever the life of that puppy is, then I'm ready to go. Aww. I'm going to train them and raise them and ha- hang out with a puppy. I love, That's my it. Idea. I love it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with me here today. Um, yes, I will, it was a pleasure. Likewise, I really enjoy hearing your story and I hope to stay in touch if that's okay. Yes, ma'am. Anytime that I can do anything, if I can do anything for you, feel free to call me. Likewise, likewise. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time as I sit down with Jack Dennis. Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.